All right, well, this morning while we were worshiping was thinking of uh, just a really awesome promise we have in God's Word that um, tells us in James chapter 4 that there's this amazing thing that happens if we choose to draw near to God. The Bible tells us we are given a promise from God that if we set our face to Him, if we draw near to Him, that He will draw near to us. And that's precisely what we do here on Sunday morning, whether it's through song, through confession, or through prayer. Um, we are drawing near to God, to the living God. Right now, we're going to do that as we look at His Word. And, and the truth of the matter is that what we are in the need of the most is not an amazing arrangement, as amazing as that arrangement of those songs were, okay? Okay. Um, what we are most in need of is not um, slick words or a fancy presentation. What we are most in need of is an encounter with the living God. And so when we open up our Bibles on Sunday mornings, we come to, to, to church, we do so because we believe God has something to say. And as his people, um, we come ready to hear ready to listen what his word is with the expectation that an encounter with the living God leaves us changed. We, we should not expect to walk in here on a Sunday morning and walk out those doors unchanged. To do so would, would reduce God um, and minimize what he is able to do. And so um, this morning, I don't think there's any words on the screen, but I would, you will be helped greatly this morning if you have your Bible open in front of you to John chapter 17. And um, we're, we're, looking, um, we're looking at his word this morning. And so before we look at it, I'm going to just pray for us um, to prepare our heart um, as the Lord is um, speaking to us this morning through his word. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, that you are a God who is um, almighty and who's uh, all-powerful, Lord, and you're a God who speaks, who makes himself known. And so um, this very morning, as we consider your words, Father, I pray that you would draw near to us, that your presence in this place would be undeniable, Lord, that, you would, your, that your spirit would just fill this place, um, Lord, and that as we examine these words, which are your words, Lord. We just pray that we would see Christ in them and that Christ would be magnified and glorified in this place and that we as your people would be changed as a result. Lord, and so we just ask that you would speak to us right now through your word, which we believe to be eternal and true. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, if you are, have been around for the last couple of weeks, you know that we're as a church uh, in a series examining John 17 together. This passage, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that oftentimes there's a little heading above chapter 17 that calls John 17, the, the title of it is the High Priestly Prayer. We know that Jesus, if you're familiar with his life, you know that Jesus was a man of prayer. Um, he would often retreat to pray. Um, he would spend great, uh, a great amount of time with the Father. In fact, the Bible tells us it's not just that he was a man of prayer, but that he is a man of prayer because we know that the Bible says Jesus is currently seated at the right hand of Father where he lives to make intercession for you and for me. He lives to pray for us continually. That's what Jesus is doing right now. So Jesus is a man of prayer. But what's so unusual about John 17 is 
for all the times that Jesus gets away to pray, we, the recordings of his prayers that we have, we don't have a lot of content of what he actually prayed except for John 17. This is the longest recorded passage in the Bible that records one of his prayers. And I would argue that if you were to just consider um, the nature of what's happening, the context, what Jesus is, is facing just moments after he prays this prayer, this is arguably the greatest prayer that was ever prayed by Jesus in the Bible. Last week, as we considered the first five verses, verses one to five, what we noticed was that the subject of his prayer was specifically himself. Jesus was praying to the Father for himself. Jesus was concerned primarily that in his death, that God the Father would be glorified. And in glorifying the Son, that God would be glorified. And so that's ultimately what we looked at last week. We looked at the cross and how the cross reveals to us the glory of God. It shows us his very nature. This morning, as we consider here in verse 6, the, the, the focus of Jesus' prayer shifts. The subject of his prayer Shifts. There's a transition that happens here in verse 6. And his focus, the subject matter of his prayer, shifts from himself to his believers, to his disciples, those who are immediately in his presence, who have received his word by faith and have committed to following him with their lives. That's who Jesus is praying for. You can see it in verse 9. He says, I am not praying for the world, but for those who whom you have given me. That's the focus of Jesus' prayer. And this focus will continue throughout the rest of the chapter. This morning, as we consider verses 6, and I'm actually going to get into the first half of verse 11, we will notice that in these verses, there are zero petitions. So while Jesus is praying to the Father, while the Son is praying to the Father, in these verses, He's not asking anything of the Father. He's not requesting anything. But rather, he, he will do that later in the chapter. But before Jesus tells us, before we discover what Jesus prays for his disciples, in our verses this morning, we will learn why Jesus prays for his disciples. Before he can make any request, Jesus provides reasons for why he is praying for his disciples. Now, remember, Jesus is moments away from being arrested and being brutally murdered. And in a prayer that spans some 26 verses, five of those 26 verses are about Jesus praying for himself. In his last moments on this earth, what is most concerning to Jesus what is burdening his heart as he pours it out to the Father? What he wants more than anything is that God would keep the disciples and you and me. So in his last moments before, I mean, this is how selfless Jesus is. Not only is he going to the cross, but he's going to the cross with you on his mind. That's amazing. This is the type of king that we get to follow. What a humbling thought. In the most horrific moments of his life, Jesus is praying for you and for me. There's a theologian 
um, right now, his name is Michael Reeves, who has done a lot of writing and thinking specifically about the nature of the Trinity. One of the things that, you know, the nature of the Trinity is, is we consider knowing God. There's no greater thing to know in all of the universe than to know God. And if God exists as a triune God, then one of the greatest things that we can do is set our minds to thinking about who God is as the triune God. And Michael Reeves has written a ton about the Trinity. And he, he writes a lot about, um, in his book, Delighting on the Trinity, he writes about uh, how John 17 sort of reveals the Trinity and, and gives us sort of a window into what is actually happening here. Um, he points out how this is, like I said before, the high priestly prayer. And the, the idea of priestly work would have pointed back to the Old Testament. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament and sort of the role of what a priest was, a, a priest was appointed by God on behalf of the people, right? So he, a priest would go into the very presence of God representing the people. And, and the work that we're probably most familiar with that priests do is that of sacrifices, right? On the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice, the symbolic sacrifice of a goat spilling of the blood on behalf of the people of God to take away the sins of the people of God. We know that just in a ch couple of chapters from now, in John chapter 19, Jesus will be not just the priest who intercedes on behalf of the people. He will also be the sacrifice, right? He will give up his own life. His own blood will be spilled for these people. Most of us are familiar when you think of the Old Testament concept of a priest that their work involved making sacrifices on behalf of the people. But there was a, another job that priests had when they would enter into the tabernacle before the presence of God. And they would, they would burn incense, they would burn incense in the tabernacle, and the incense in the Bible is symbolic for prayers. So you could imagine a priest lighting incense, and the sweet aroma of the incense is going up to God, symbolic of the priest's prayers. Well, when the priest would do that, they would be wearing something on their chest, and that something would be a gold plate, a gold plate that would hang around their neck and cover, essentially, their heart. And on that gold plate, there would be 12 jewels, 12 different jewels. And each of those jewels, different kinds of jewels, each of those jewels would be inscribed with a particular name of a particular tribe. So in effect, while the priest is in the presence of God, he has the people of God literally on his heart. We see the exact same thing happen here in John 17 with our great high priest, Jesus himself. It's precisely what's happening. Jesus is coming before the Father. He's offering up sweet aroma of prayers to the Father. And as he does this, he does so with God's people on his heart. As we consider why Jesus prays for his disciples, we learn a great deal about how Jesus thinks of his disciples, their very nature. Now, the temptation here is to make this simply a history lesson. Well, this, these truths applied strictly to those disciples who are immediately in his presence. While the immediate application is for those first disciples, I believe there's nothing said in these verses that does not apply to every disciple, you and me, throughout the ages. And so this morning, as we consider the reasons for Jesus' prayer for the disciples, we will discover that genuine disciples 
are those whose identity, whose faith, and whose calling are firmly rooted in Jesus Christ. It's the big idea of the text this morning. Genuine disciples, genuine followers of Jesus are those whose identity, whose faith, and whose calling firmly rooted in Jesus Christ. And those will be our three points for this morning. First is identity. How does, as Jesus is praying for the disciples, he's praying for them simply because of who they are, their identity. If you look just at the first part of verse 6, we learn that the disciples, Jesus sees them as precious possessions of God, the very property of God himself. Not just property, but precious property of God himself. In the first part of verse 6, it says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you ha- who you gave me out of the world. Th- these are people to whom he has manifested his name. Just like we saw last week, this is the supreme objective of, God, of Jesus, the Son. It is to manifest or to reveal or to show or to glorify God the Father. This is why this is his supreme objective. And that's essentially what manifest means. It means to show or to reveal, to make known. And we know that what Jesus wants to make known is the name of God. It says so in the text. And the name in the Old Testament in the Bible times, a, a name would have represented all of a person. Really their total nature. And so, so Jesus wants to manifest, he says he manifested, he revealed, he showed the full nature of God to his disciples, to his followers. Now we know that this is what God does. He reveals himself. And throughout the Bible we learn that he does so through a variety of different ways. We know that he reveals himself through creation. Psalm 14, 1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So if you want to get an idea of what God is like, to some extent you could just gaze at creation and you'll get a glimpse of God's very nature just by looking at his creation. We also know that God reveals himself providentially throughout human history. Just the way that human history unfolds reveals God at work. We also know that when we open up this book, like we said before, God's very nature is described to us. It is pronounced to us. It is proclaimed to us. We can learn God's very character just by looking at his word. But the greatest revelation of God himself that the world has ever seen is in Jesus Christ, the Son in Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If you want to know what God is like, look no further than Jesus Christ, the Son. In John 12.45, Jesus says, And whoever sees me, this is Jesus' declaration about himself. He says, Whoever sees me, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. So by looking at Jesus, ultimately you are looking at God the Father. And then in John 14, just a few chapters before this, in a moment sort of you would sense maybe a frustration when Philip asks of Jesus, show us the Father. Listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Philip, remember the request was to see the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the greatest revelation 
of God that humanity has ever seen because he is God himself. And he has manifested, he has shown his nature, his name to his people. So his people now bear his name. And these people are people who have been, the verse, the, 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 the section of the scripture says, are people who have been who are possessions of the Father. They have been given by the Father to Jesus. Jesus says, yours, referring to the people, the disciples, yours they were. Jesus is praying for a group of people who in the mind and sovereignty of God have been called out of the world by the Father and given to the Son. The disciples are therefore, in effect, the Father's precious gift to the Son, His precious property. And so what we discover here is as we consider our identity as followers of Jesus, our identity as disciples is rooted in the fact that ultimately as followers of Jesus, we are people who belong to God. We are His precious property. Now, can you just put yourself in the shoes of the disciples as they are in earshot of this prayer, as they eavesdrop on this intimate moment between the Son and the Father, and they hear Jesus' description of them, and he's calling them God's precious property. All of this is because all that is happening is happening because God loves these people. And they're his, they belong to him. Can you imagine the, the comfort, the sense of value and direction and, and purpose in all of their life that these words provided? That this idea that they belong to God, providing comfort, no doubt, for their anxious minds and peace for their weary hearts. If you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to God, you're his precious property. Last night our family was watching, well, I think for a little bit. I don't know how long it lasted, but Toy Story. Any Toy Story fans in the house? Maybe a few. Okay. A couple of chuckles out there. Big fans. Okay. All right. That's okay. Great, great movie. Love the whole series. Fantastic. Fantastic. But as you consider sort of Woody's adventure um, in life, uh, if you consider the, the, the trials and the circumstances the growing difficulty and just sort of the terrible odds that our boy Woody endured in virtually every circumstance, persevered through. Ultimately, Woody did what Woody did because there was a name that was written on the bottom of Woody's shoe. It was the name Andy. And with the name Andy written on the body, bottom of Woody's shoe, Woody was convinced that he had a place. He had a person to whom he belonged. And if you just watch that story, one of the things that's so just fantastic about the movie is that that sense of purpose, that's that, that sense of belonging for Woody provided meaning to his existence. It provided joy in his existence. It gave him purpose and direction. And the same is true for you and for me. If you're in Christ, there's a, a name 
It's not written on the bottom of your foot. It's written on your heart. It's the name of Jesus. He looks at you and says, you are mine. You belong. to. You are his precious property that he's going to endure the cross to claim as his own. You belong to God. Now, the, the application of this truth as it's lived out in our life is virtually endless. Listen to John Calvin talk about this, the reformer. He says, we are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. So the fact that we belong to God, it brings us meaning in our life. It also brings us meaning in our death. We are God's. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are God's. Let, we, let when I God's, apostrophe S, sorry. When I, the way I read that, it just made me sound like, whoa, we're God's? No, we're not God's. Okay, we belong to God. There we go. Therefore, let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Folks, the application for the fact that we belong to God is just virtually endless in our own life. If we are not our own, we are not to live as if we belong to ourselves, which I would be willing to wager is the great temptation that is waiting for you when you leave this place this morning. To be tempted to think you just belong to yourself. Therefore, do whatever makes you happy. Say whatever you want to say. Do anything that you want to do. And if we just belong to ourselves, then I'll be the first to say, why not? But if we belong to God, then ultimately we see our great aim in life is not to bring, not to bring pleasure and to, to satisfy ourselves, but ultimately to please the one who calls us his own. I mean, it helps us understand the difference between right and wrong. God becomes not just an authority, but he becomes sort of the moral authority in our life as well. He gets to say what's right, what's wrong. If we live according to God because we belong to him, then we stop putting ourselves first in our relationships, in our marriage, in our family, in our workplace, with our roommates, with our neighbors, we start thinking of the, we start being directed by his great love for us and seeing it expressed through our life by love for others. If we belong to God, then we are able to trust in God through thick and thin. Who are we? What's our identity? If you're in Christ, you are the precious property of the Almighty God. Secondly, this tells us a great deal about who we are, our identity, but it also, looking at Jesus' prayer reveals to us a great deal about the life of faith that he has called us to live. You see it there in verse uh, 7 through 9. I'll just read those again. Actually, the end of 6. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. And I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In these verses, we get a picture of the life of faith that God has called us to live. 
And you can kind of divide it up into sort of two categories. The first is, what is God's work? As we consider just the, the, the life of living, a, a life of faith by Jesus, you can divide them up into two categories. God's work. And you see God's work all over these verses. God is active. He is the one who is the initiator. He's the one who is moving, who's at work. And our status as his people is directly a result of his initiation, of his work. You see, in the beginning, we, we initially belong to God. We are his. He, he, God the Father gave us to Jesus. We are given by the Father to Jesus. We see this here in the verses ahead of us. God has been fully revealed to them through the Son. Jesus gives the words that the Father has given him to the people. Over and over and over again through these first nine verses, what you see is God's work on display. He's the great initiator. Last night I was studying this passage, and you know, if you were here the first week, we stood up and we read it. And it was kind of a challenge, honestly, for me, because even just reading this whole chapter out loud is kind of a challenge because there's so much repetition. There's so much repetition. One of the words that is repeated over and over and over again, you're almost like, oh my goodness, what is happening here is the word give. The word give. You see that so much is given. 17 times in this chapter alone, we see the word give or given. And every time it's mentioned, the giver is God. The Father gives people to the Son. The Father gives words to the Son, and the Son gives those words to His people. Over and over and over again, God jumps off the pages of John 17 declaring, I am the great giver. I am a God who gives and who loves to give, and the fact that you are in me is the result of my generosity, the result of His work. He's the great initiator he is an active God, and we are simply the recipients of his activity, of his grace and his mercy and his love at work in this world. The reason we're in his family and we belong to him, as awesome as you are and highly gifted and talented, I don't want to burst your bubble, but it's not because you bring something that God wants. For most of us, for all of us, that should, should be a sigh of relief. God has simply chosen to set his eyes on you. So as we consider the life of faith, you have to start by considering what God has done. Secondly, it, just because God is at work, it does not mean that we don't have a responsibility. We do, and you see it painted in, picture, or painted in verse 8. God's busy at work, but in, in verse 8 we're given a glimpse of what our responsibility is in light of God's great saving work. And it's kind of broken down into, into three different categories. First, the disciples are those people who have received the words of God, that, that gave, uh, received the words God gave to Jesus to give to us. Not everyone who, who heard Jesus' words received them. We know this because Jesus was a, a great preacher who preached to crowds and thousands upon thousands. And there are many people who sat under his teaching. In fact, there are many people who sat with their, jaw, with their chins on the ground in awe of his preaching. But there are not many, there were not many who received his words Jesus describes his true disciples as those who hear his words and receive them. 
They also have come to know in truth. The NASB says they have truly understood that Jesus came from the Father. So the message that Jesus is proclaiming, they hear it, they receive it, and they have come to understand what it means. They have processed through it. They, they have laid hold to truth. And then finally, they are those who have believed, he says, that you sent me. So receiving his words, understanding his message, and believing his message ultimately that's our responsibility. That's what, how we respond to God's great saving work in the world. Jesus provides for us in this prayer a picture of what a, 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 picture of what a, a faithful follower of his looks like. He refers earlier in verse 6 as to his disciples as those who have kept your word, he says. And so this, this idea of keeping God's word comes with it an, an idea of sort of obedience to God's Word. It's not just that they have received it, heard it, understand it, say, yes, I agree with it, but their lives have been transformed as a result of it. They are actually being obedient. God's Word makes a difference in how they live their lives. It makes a difference in how they form relationships. It makes a difference in how they view themselves. It makes a difference in how they view the world around them. It's actually transformed them. I don't know if you guys have ever had the just say the great misfortune, okay, of trying to speak to a adolescent while they are playing a video game. Has anybody found themselves in that, that position before? I, I just, you know, God bless you. May his face shine upon you. I'm so sorry that you have tried to engage an adolescent while they're playing a video game. It's often not the easiest thing to do. They're locked in. They're in the zone. They're just playing a game. Okay, now, you could go one step further, and I don't know if you've done this before, heaven forbid, ask them to do something while they're playing. I know, I know, it's just unbelievable. I can't even imagine. Ask them to actually do something while they're playing a video game. Oftentimes, not oftentimes, but occasionally, found ourselves in a position where we've asked one of our children, hey, would you walk the dog? And moments later, find the child coming to me with a handful of diapers, thinking that like, okay, there's usually four things my dad asked me. I heard something, maybe it was diapers, you know, like just doesn't connect, right? Doesn't connect. Oftentimes, I fear that this is the way that we respond to God's word when it's spoken to us. We live in a world that is full of distractions. We find our minds preoccupied in other places. And oftentimes, we go to God's word for just maybe momentary inspiration. Oh, I just need a word. And that's good. That's fine. It's a good reason to go to God. But it certainly is not the picture of somebody who cherishes the very Word of God, who, who keeps God's Word. That's not what it looks like. But rather, somebody who keeps God's Word, who's a, a keeper of this message, they cherish God's Word. They devour God's Word. It's built into their day. They wake up thinking about God's Word. They go to bed praying God's Word. They speak God's Word when they have brothers and sisters who are hurting or who are in, in need of a Word. They don't give them their own Word. They give them God's Word, words that are eternal and true. Somebody who is a keeper of God's word cherishes it. They take care of it. They protect God's word. And they pass God's word along in the great work of disciple making. This is what it looks like to be a keeper of God's word. This is what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Thirdly, why else does he pray for them? He prays for them because of their unique 
calling, the unique calling that God has placed on their life. We see this in verses 10 and 11. And as we look at these, we see that essentially the disciples are God's chosen instrument for continuing the work that Jesus has started. Look at verse 10 and 11. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. This is another motivator for Jesus, is the calling or the purpose of the people for whom he prays. Kind of two categories there. First is the display of God's glory. This is, remember, Jesus' paramount concern is the glorification of God. This is why he's going to the cross, that God the Father might be glorified, and in glorifying the God, and in glorifying the Son, that the Father would be glorified. And so this is his primary concern. What we see in just a few chapters earlier, in chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified. How is God glorified? Yes, he's glorified in the cross, but also he's glorified that, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. By the disciples laying hold to the very word of God and by bearing fruit, letting the word work its way out in their life, the disciples are bringing glory to God in everything that they say and that they do. And in this chapter specifically, the dot that he connects with them bearing fruit is how they love one another. The, the love that they have for one another is, is, is critical to this bearing fruit. Last, last week we considered a quote that basically talks about the church as being sort of the, the mirror which reflects God's glory. And as his people, that's ultimately what we do. As we long to bear fruit, as we give ourselves to love, loving God and loving those around us, we put God's glory on display for all to see. We display the glory of Jesus. The other aspect of this calling is as they display the glory of Jesus, they also continue the work that Jesus has started. You see it there in verse 11, the first part of verse 11. Jesus says, he will no longer be in the world. Therefore, the disciples, aided by the Holy Spirit, will have to navigate the world's temptations and trials on their own. Well, not really on their own, right? Because Jesus is where right now? The right hand of the Father praying for us, and he's given them the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is their comforter, who is at work in the midst. In fact, he's so much at work in their midst that Jesus is able to say, you will do greater things than I have done. Why can he say that? How can Jesus, I mean, have you read this book? Have you seen the miracles that Jesus has done? What precedent does he have to say that? Well, because he's given us his spirit, and Jesus currently is alive at the right hand of the Father, praying for us that his work continues, and it continues through you and through me, followers of Jesus. This is the calling that he's put on our life. Now, you can imagine these disciples. Their leader is about to be crucified. They're probably terrified in this moment. Paul, speaking to Timothy, seeing the fear that was in him because of the persecution he was facing, encouraged him, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus himself said as much in chapter 15, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Persecution is an aspect that is baked into the Christian life. Why does Jesus pray for the disciples? He does so because he knows they need it. You need it. I need it. 
the circumstances that oftentimes we find ourselves in. I mean, just doesn't that bring you comfort to know that you're not expected to navigate those on your own, but that he is interceding on your behalf. In fact, he lives to do just that. This is the calling that God has placed in our life, that we are a people who carry out his very work. Jesus says, in fact, it's, it's to our advantage that he goes away. It's to our advantage that he goes to the Father. And he knows that it's precisely what you and I need. So in conclusion, as we consider the reasons why Jesus prays, he has many reasons why he prays for the disciples. And next week and the week after that, we will look at specifically what he asks of the Father for his disciples. But simply by pausing and considering the reasons, my hope and prayer is that we are, as his people, encouraged. That we're encouraged to think that Jesus is praying for us and that we belong to him. And that because we belong to him, there's a particular way that we are to, to believe in him and to behave in this world. This prayer for us provides great clarity on who we are in Christ, the, the life that he's called us to live, and the calling that he's placed on our lives to continue the work that Jesus has called us to. Now, in just a few moments, Jesus, we know, will be arrested. Eventually, he'll be murdered. And it's because of the death that Jesus dies, because of the great sacrifice that he pays, that we are able, with confidence, to enter into his family. And so one of the ways that we regularly remember that and celebrate that is through communion. This is a visible reminder of who we actually are. We are God's people. We belong to him. So if you have the elements, I would encourage you to take them out.